All right, let's, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time of study this evening. Our blessed God, pray that thou would send forth thy spirit to give us understanding and love and obedience uh, to thy word. We thank thee that uh, it is a light uh, and a lamp unto uh, our path. And we thank thee that thou hast preserved it throughout the ages against many who have despised and hated thy truth. Father, we, we do take it up, uh, even this evening, with great joy, thanksgiving to thee, uh, that thou hast revealed thyself uh, unto us through thy word and, and through the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless this time we ask and forgive us of our sins wherein we have offended thee. Lead us, Lord, in, unto thyself. In Jesus' name, amen. So John 14... And uh, we are looking at verses 13 through 15 tonight. I'll begin with verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. In our previous study, we spent uh, our time one verse, verse uh, 12, uh, talking about what does it mean, the greater works that uh, those who believe in Christ would perform here. Jesus actually promised that there would be that those who believe on him would do greater works than he did because he ascends unto the Father. And uh, we summarize, just to summarize very briefly, uh, that's most significantly realized in the ministry of the apostles, the greater works. And then greater, not uh, in the abilities that the apostles received, uh, not greater in the sense of uh, uh, greater than the works of Jesus, uh, walking upon the water, multiplying the the bread and the fish to feed thousands, not greater than those, but greater probably in number because he ascends into the Father, he gives his, his spirit unto his uh, apostles, disciples, and they go forth to, to do those greater works by way of how they spread out throughout the world to perform those works. And uh, again, the greater works in another sense I would submit would be the uh, 
the greater works of uh, salvation, the greater works of regeneration, the new creation that uh, would be realized in, throughout the world as the gospel uh, goes forth. And uh, there's not a greater work than regeneration, the new creation. Uh, we can talk about all the miracles that Jesus did, but the greatest miracle is uh, one being born again, one who was dead, being made alive spiritually to God. And we're, we're recipients of those greater works, and we praise God for those greater works. And I won't, I won't uh, basically go through more by way of summary, just to encourage you if there is anyone who did not hear the study last week. We did talk about miraculous signs and wonders. We did talk about how we need not uh, be gullible uh, because there are also lying signs and wonders and we need to test by way of the fruit of those who claim to perform miracles, uh, the fruit of, of doctrine, uh, the fruit of life and practice. And so we need to test, and that's what the Lord encourages us to do. Uh, in Deuteronomy 13, back in the Old Testament, that if someone professes to tell the future and it comes true, but they are leading God's people away from the truth which has been revealed, uh, the Lord says that he's testing his people to see whether they'll follow the miracle or they'll follow the truth. And so again, very, very important that we not be those who follow miracles, that we follow the truth. It's not to say God doesn't perform and cannot perform if he chooses to do so, a miracle at any time. But how we test, again, the quality of that miracle uh, is by the truth. Now, verse 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Remember that Jesus in John 14 has told his disciples, he's speaking to them in the upper room, they've celebrated the Passover, they've have a, had a common meal together, the, the Lord's Supper has been instituted, and he has also told them that he is leaving, and he is comforting them in chapter 14 by saying that uh, though he is going, he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven. He's not abandoning, abandoning them, he's not forsaking them, uh, but he is going to prepare a place for them in, in heaven that they may be with him uh, forever and ever. Verse 3, John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus also comforts them by promising that he would be with them by way of the miraculous gifts and power that he would bestow upon 
uh, his disciples and upon uh, those to whom he gives that authority and power, that would also assure them that they were not alone, that the power of the Lord Jesus was with them to confirm unto them that he had not abandoned them, that they were serving him in preaching and teaching and the Lord Jesus through his miraculous power was bestowing that upon his, his disciples as a further comfort unto them. Now Jesus, in the section before us, gives further comfort to his disciples when he says in verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here's a further comfort. That basically, Jesus says that he would make their prayers efficacious. The prayers of his apostles, as those who follow him. He would make them efficacious as they offer their prayers to the Father in his name, in the name of Christ. In other words, Jesus would intercede on behalf of those who pray to him in the name of, in his name. He would be at the right hand of the Father. He would present their prayers as acceptable in the sight of the Father. In Hebrews 7, 25, it says that he ever lives to make intercession for us in heaven. So how are we to understand this promise, though? That it is a promise. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. How are we to understand this promise? It is a true promise from, from the Lord Jesus, and uh, all his promises uh, are true. Uh, he cannot lie. What does this mean, then? Was Jesus saying that whatever the disciples want from God, uh, all that they need to do is ask for it and tack at the end, tack on to the end of the prayer, in Jesus' name. Well, sadly, uh, this is what many vain and covetous charlatans proclaim today. Um, name it and claim it uh, in the name of Jesus, whether it's expensive homes, luxury cars, huge bank accounts, private jets and planes, just pray in Jesus' name. Uh, and you will receive it. That's what they say Jesus is promising here. But that's not what it is to pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in faith, in trust, that uh, Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, that he does have all authority, that he does have all power. Uh, so we are praying in his name when we come to Jesus in trust and faith as to who he has revealed himself to be. <clears throat> we are praying in the name of Jesus when we pray according to his will, uh, not according to our will, but according to his will, that is to pray in the name of Jesus. For example, the same human author, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also penned 
1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the epistles. And in 1st John, chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, this is what he writes. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that is in Christ. That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And so here is a further clarification by the same writer, the Apostle John. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying according to his will, not according to our desires. I mean, again, we may have right desires and pray accordingly, but not just according to our own selfish desires. Uh, that, that is not praying in the name of Jesus. Uh, that's praying in our own name, even if we use Jesus' name. A lot, of, a lot of people just use in Jesus' name like a rabbit's foot. You know, it, it's, it becomes rather superstitious. Not understanding that to pray in the name of Jesus means far more than just to utter the words. Uh, it, again, means praying in faith as to who Jesus is, Savior and Lord. Uh, praying uh, in accordance with his will that he has revealed in Scripture. How do we know the will of God? Again, we know God's revealed will from what he's given to us in the Bible. Uh, that's where we should really begin, um, is praying according to the promises that God has made to us in his word. Uh, what needs we have spiritually? How, how often do we hear these, uh, these TV, so-called TV evangelists or whatever, how often do we hear them praying for humility? Um, that's certainly praying according to the will of Christ, right? How often do we hear them praying uh, for um, greater love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. How often do we hear them praying for repentance, praying for holiness? Um, again, I don't hear them praying for those things. Uh, what I hear them praying for when I've happened to listen to uh, clips or something of that nature concerning a one of their uh, shows, that's all I can call it, is basically a performance or a show, but what I hear them praying for um, uh, is always, seems always greater and bigger, uh, more expensive, uh, um, and encouraging people to do likewise. That's not what the Lord Jesus is saying to the disciples here, uh, whatsoever ye shall ask in my name. You see, God is a good father. 
he he always gives to us that which is good. And many times we ask for things that are not good for us in our in our prayers. And when we do ask for something that's not good for us, perhaps it's not good for us in and of itself. Perhaps it's not good for us because it's not the right time. But what it, for whatever reason, when God withholds from us something that we pray for that, uh, let's say, is not sinful in and of itself, uh, God is always good to give to us uh, what we need. He's also good not to give to us what we do not need at that particular time in which we might ask for it. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, <clears throat> Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what it man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how <clears throat> to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him. So, whatever we ask for, whatever we knock, whatever we seek to have given to us, uh, the Lord says that there's always an answer that he gives uh, because he is good. And the answer may be yes, the answer may be no, the answer may be wait. But he, but he always, in goodness to us, does answer our prayer. And I'm reminded of, uh, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, It was not good. It was not good for Paul to be healed and to have that thorn in the flesh removed from him. It was not good for him, even though he asked three times that the Lord would remove this thorn in the flesh. Messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, he says. Second Corinthians chapter 12 the Lord answered Paul, revealed to him, and said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So, when Jesus says in John 14, 
Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. Paul asked in the name of Jesus. And it was not specifically what Paul asked for that, that Jesus gave unto him. And again, we have to use the scripture to interpret scripture. If we simply take a verse like we have just read in John 14, without comparing that with other portions of God's word, we're going to have uh, not a proper interpretation. Uh, we're not going to have all of the insight and the revelation that the Lord has given to us to be able to use to properly understand that passage. And the Lord Jesus does say in verse 13 that uh, he will do so, give to those who ask in his name that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the, the Father is glorified when we pray in the name of Christ, that is faith uh, in who Christ is, faith in what Christ has accomplished, in his power, in his might, and in accordance with his will. Uh, God is glorified when we do that. And Jesus, uh, in taking those prayers and, and perfecting those prayers as our intercessor at God's right hand, presents them unto the Father uh, in a in an acceptable uh, way, even when our prayers are very weak. Verse 14, If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. Very similar to what he said in verse 13, but notice, if ye ask anything. Again, we have to qualify. If it is according to the will of God, uh, that's what... Again, John says in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, if you ask anything according to my will, I will give it. So what if, ask anything, Jesus says, and again, I, I'm only making this type of a, a statement not in any way to be sacrilegious, but to challenge those that, that do not qualify the anything there at all and act as though they can actually ask for anything. Jesus says, you remember in Matthew 17, 20, that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea even with the faith of a mustard seed. So what I would propose to these TV evangelists uh, is to show um, that if what the way they interpret what Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, I w I'd like to see them speak to a mountain to be cast into the sea. I'd like to see them take that type of a step if they truly believe that that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, let's let's watch you say to this mountain. Uh, 
that was obviously not what Jesus was teaching in that particular situation in John or Matthew 17. The disciples said, "Why couldn't we cast the these these demons out of this uh, poor boy?" Um, and uh, Jesus is explaining something about using that terminology of mountain and uh, the term mountain very often refers to in scripture kingdoms and I submit to you that what he's talking about here that you can say to the kingdom of Satan this mountain that they were facing by way of this demonic possession of this young boy you can say to this mountain be removed and cast into the midst of the sea uh, and it will it will obey that that we have by God's grace the power over Satan's kingdom the kingdom of Christ has conquered Satan's kingdom in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 51 25 it speaks of a destroying mountain. That's uh, referring in Jeremiah 51 to Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, as a destroying mountain. Uh, in Daniel 2, it speaks of this stone that becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. That's Christ's kingdom. In Zechariah 4, 7, it speaks of a mountain that's standing in the way of Zerubbabel in finishing the rebuilding of the temple. That's the kingdom of Persia. In Revelation 8, 8, speaks of this burning mountain that's cast into the sea. Uh, that's referring to the kingdom of the Vandals uh, that uh, invaded from North Africa, invaded uh, Rome and uh, speaking, I think it's the second trumpet judgment, the first four trumpet judgments have to do with, um, with uh, various heathen, pagan uh, types of invasions of the Western Roman Empire, and then the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments speak of the Islamic invasion of the eastern uh, part of the Roman Empire, not the western. And uh, so each of these examples I've given speak of mountains, but they speak of kingdoms. They're, they're representative of kingdoms. So when Jesus says, I believe in Matthew 17, that his disciples could speak to the mountain and say, if they simply had the faith of a mustard seed, if that faith is not in their ability, but their faith is in Christ, they can say to the mountain, that satanic mountain, that satanic kingdom, be removed and cast into the sea. Uh, again, they were questioning Jesus. Why couldn't we cast the demons out? And this is Jesus' response. That's the context. So again, I only offer that as a, interpretation of, of the passage to show again how um, if these individuals on TV uh, various churches uh, claim 
to be able to do whatever they ask Jesus for, that Jesus will give it to them, whatever it is. If that's how they're interpreting scripture, then let them follow what Jesus said with regard to a literal mountain um, and see if they are able to do that. That's not what Jesus is actually saying, but that's how they would interpret it, uh, the, the passage, uh, likewise. And uh, I think that, again, it shows, it really shows their um, unfamiliarity, their willingness to, to simply interpret the, the Bible according to um, their own rules of interpretation, not according to Scripture itself. The Bible interprets the Bible. Then we come to uh, verse 15. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the Lord has promised uh, to be with his disciples by way of the works that they would perform, by way of their being able to ask uh, in the name of Christ, according to the will of Christ, the things that they need uh, in order to fulfill their mission, their uh, ministry uh, for Christ. And now he gives them an exhortation in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. This immediately follows what he had just said about asking anything in his name. I think that uh, this really gives to us, sets a hedge or guard uh, around what we ask because we're not to ask for just anything. We're to ask that which is according to his commandments. We're to ask out of love for Christ. Uh, that's the context in which the Lord Jesus exhorts them after saying to them, if you ask anything in my name, then he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So, Here's, here's the, the, the fence, if, if you will, around that petition, ask anything in my name, is if you love me, keep my commands. You see, what we ask must be out of love for God. Must be out of love for our neighbor. The things that we ask should be, again, have the glory of God even if there are needs that we have, ultimately, primarily, chiefly, we can't forget the glory of God. It can't simply be because we desire something or want something or even need something. First and foremost, we ask to glorify God in that situation. That's why we ask. And, and Jesus, I believe, follows this up in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. In that context, by Again, uh, seeking to hedge in how we ask. We ask out of love for Jesus Christ. We ask out of keeping his commandments. Uh, not, again, just exercising our will, our desires, and what we ask for.
As Jesus here is preparing his disciples uh, for his departure, he would have them to remember that love for Christ is evidenced by obedience to his commandments. And sadly, again, in, in our time in history, and perhaps there have been those throughout history that have taught the same things that are contrary to God's will, that uh, love is contrary to the commandments of God. In other words, when we truly love Christ, we're not under God's law, um, as if they're opposed to one another. Uh, that loving God is, is something that the Spirit simply uh, gives to us, love for God, but it doesn't really have anything to, to do with keeping God's commandments. Uh, there are churches that, again, you know, teach we're under grace, uh, which, again, means in their judgment that we're in no sense under God's law. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And so, again, in some churches, grace is uh, pitted against the keeping of God's law in any sense. Some, in some churches, love for God is pitted against um, keeping God's commandments in any sense. Uh, they're like opposed to one another. Uh, and that's, they, they would say, that's being led by the Spirit, not by the law, when we simply love God, when we simply love uh, our neighbor. And they would interpret those commandments of Christ to have replaced uh, God's moral commandments. That that um, the the only thing that we're to do is to love God, uh, to love our neighbor, and that there are no other commandments that the Lord has given uh, unto us. Well, that's quite again contrary to what God teaches in His in His Word. Uh, all of God's moral laws in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are, in fact, Christ's commandments. When he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, what are Christ's commandments? Well, all of Christ's commandments are found in the moral law of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. All of God's commandments um, that are of a moral nature are, his, are Christ's commandments. That's what the Lord is saying when he says, and summarizes all of God's commandments under two commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. Those two commandments summarize all of God's moral commandments. Now, a summary of God's commandments doesn't do away with the longer list of God's commandments. It's a summary. Uh, if I summarize... Uh, for you uh, a verse from the scripture am I saying my summary replaces that verse of scripture uh, of course not if you summarize a document whatever that may be a letter that has been written if you summarize it you're not doing away with the letter uh, you're, you're giving uh, again a, a summary of it so likewise these two great commandments 
are summaries. They do not do away with all of God's law that are summarized. And uh, in fact, those two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, where, where does that commandment come from? It comes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, what about the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? Where does that commandment come from? It comes from Leviticus 19.18. So the very summary that the Lord Jesus gives of God's law, the two are taken from the Old Testament. They're not brand new, as if Jesus was just giving them for the first time. In, in um, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Love does not, again, replace God's commandments. Love fulfills God's commandments. And by fulfill doesn't mean replace. It means to make full. So God's, so the love for Jesus Christ doesn't replace Christ's commandments. It makes full God's commandments. It is a way in which we understand that all of God's commandments are to be done out of love for God and out of love for our neighbor. That's, again, what Paul means when he says in Romans 13.10, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He's just, uh, he's just quoted in verse 9 various commandments. that He says in verse 9, Romans 13, 9, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended, that is summarized, in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's comprehended or summarized, but not replaced. Would be that more and more, sadly, uh, evangelical churches, broadly evangelical churches, understood that. Um, that uh, love is not the enemy of obedience to God's commandments. It's the fulfilling of God's love. Uh, and that grace is not the enemy of keeping God's commandments. Uh, grace gives us the power to keep God's commandments. In Romans 6.14, you remember that the Apostle Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. <clears throat> Paul's not uh, uh, saying here that, uh, that there is in no sense that we are not to keep the law, uh, God's law, but simply to live free 
of God's law because we're under grace. Uh, he's not saying that we're set free from God's commandments uh, in, in an absolute sense or in every sense. He's saying that we are set free from the condemnation of God's commandments by the death of Christ. Christ died because we had broken God's commandments and the law condemns us for having broken God's commandments. So we're not under the law any longer if we're under grace. As we're not under the law in the sense that the law no longer condemns us. It no longer is a curse against us because Jesus bore the curse. So it's in that sense we're not under the law, but rather under grace. To be under grace means that Christ has paid the debt. To be under grace means that he has forgiven us. To be under grace means that he's imparted, he's imputed to us his perfect righteousness of the law which we could not keep, which he kept for us. It's to be, that's to be under grace. It's to be under no condemnation any longer. That's to be under grace. But it doesn't mean that we're through uh, with the law altogether. In fact, Paul makes that very clear. That's not the case in many places. But in 1 Corinthians 9.21 is a very clear place. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 9.21 He says that he became to them that are without the law as without law, meaning Gentiles. He, he, he basically says in verse 20, he became to the Jews as a Jew, that he might gain Jews. So those ceremonies uh, from the Old Testament that uh, he was willing to follow them, not as something that was required of him to do, but he was willing to uh, follow uh, those ceremonies and to even use circumcision as long as people understood that, um, that those ceremonies had been nailed to the cross, that they were not obligated to keep them, but that he was rather keeping them so as to be able to minister to Jews, to draw Jews uh, unto Christ. So. He says he became under the Jews as Jew, but then he says in verse 21, to them that are without the law, to the Gentiles, how did he act? Well, as one without the law. He didn't, uh, he didn't uh, go through and keep the ceremonial laws himself with the Gentiles. He didn't require the Gentiles keep the ceremonial laws. But he says, parenthetically in verse 21, after he says, to them that are without law as without law, then it says, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. So we are under the law to Christ, Paul says. When he says in Romans 6, we're not under the law, we're not under the condemnation of the law, true. We're not under the curse of the law, praise God. But we are under the law 
to Christ by way of by way of our loving obedience to Jesus Christ under the covenant of grace we are not uh, finished uh, by way of our obedience to God's law how do we know God's will by his law how do we please God by knowing and following his moral commandments many times again um, people want to also uphold the last six commandments and the Ten Commandments but not the first four that have to do with uh, God himself um, and uh, again the Ten Commandments uh, not to have any gods before him not to make uh, any images and worship in the way that pleases us rather than pleases God not to take God's name in vain and and to remember God's holy day Sabbath to be a holy day that is that is to be uh, used for worship and to serve him in um, sometimes and many times those first four commandments are not emphasized it's simply the commandments that have to do with our neighbor that are emphasized but uh, again they are a unit they summarize all of God's will for us and so uh, Paul says we are under law uh, to Christ uh, and and that I think uh, tells us what our responsibility is uh, uh, as as Christians we yet have a duty um, we still have an obligation um, before God uh, to grow in holiness uh, become how, how do we become more like Jesus Jesus kept the law of God in fact he kept it perfectly how are we to be conformed to Christ's image if we're not uh, following the commandments that, that God has given to us, his moral law? Again, that's how we are conformed. The Spirit must apply uh, uh, God's word to our hearts and our lives. The Spirit must give us the desire within uh, uh, our, by way of our affections uh, and our will to do so. But nevertheless, what is what's the standard that is used to conform us it's it's his law it, the power is not in the law the law doesn't give us any power um, uh, the law do, doesn't have the power to give us to keep the law that has to come from grace that has to come from God's spirit which is graciously given to us and so uh, the law cannot give us the power to keep it or to walk in faithfulness to God's law, but that is the standard. Uh, judicially, Jesus has met that standard for us already, but uh, by way of our practice, by way of our sanctification and growth in Christ, we're not finished uh, with the law. It, it's a, Paul says in Romans 7 that it's good, it's holy, and it's spiritual, um, the law of God is, in, in Romans 7. <clears throat> and I just want to close by emphasizing uh, when Jesus says, if ye love me, keep my commandments, that it's, it's easy for, for any of us to simply utter the words to 
to God uh, or to a spouse uh, or to children or to parents or to um, family members or friends or brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy to say, I love you. Um, but how is that love evidenced is, is the critical issue. Uh, that love is not merely, it should be evidenced in our words, but it's not merely evidenced in our words. Uh, that it must be evidenced uh, in deed and in truth, according to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, or 16 through 19. There we read, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. How do we know that we're of the truth? By our love for one another. That's one of the tests that is given in uh, the epistle, the first epistle of John. We evidence it in giving ourselves to one another in obedience to God's commands. And I want to just say again, uh, as I close, uh, God's love is a holy love. God's love is a sacrificial love. Anyone who speaks of love and what's being said in regard to that love, if it is immoral, it's not love. Uh, if they say, uh, I love you, and what they want you to do is to do something immoral, then what they're really saying is, I lust you, not I love you. That's not love. That's simply satisfying, uh, again, one's own sexual desires. Love is shown, dear ones, when we are willing even to give up our own rights to serve one another. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I have, I have a right to get married. And yet he gave up that right out of, out of love to serve God and to serve uh, his neighbor, to serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also says, I have a right to be supported fully. I have a right to be financially provided for from the ministry and not to have to work uh, a second job, as it were, making tents. I have a right to that. And yet I've freely given up that right in order to uh, 
bring the gospel to those who would charge me that I'm simply trying to make money off of the gospel. I'm willing to give that right up. We have a right to be treated with respect. We have a right to be treated with fairness. We have a right not to be slandered. But we show, I believe, our love for others even when we are personally offended that we are willing to give up, as it were, the right in order to serve and to give ourselves even to those who mistreat us. That's what Jesus did. Jesus gave up his right. He had a right to remain in the glory of heaven. He had a right to be there. But he freely gave up that right in order to demonstrate his love to sinners like you and me. Christ's love, dear ones, as I last thing I would say is just this. Christ's love uh, always seeks to make it clear that what it does for another, even when it hurts, is out of love for that person and supremely out of love for God. That's what Christ's love seeks to do is to, if, if a parent is disciplining a child, uh, that parent I believe has a responsibility to make it very clear to that child in the midst of disciplining uh, uh, and after the discipline to make sure that that child hears you and, and not simply hears the words but can see and, and hear in the tone of the voice that the parent loves the child. So likewise, when we as church leaders exercise discipline, we have a responsibility to make it clear, even to those that are disciplined, that we love you. That we're not doing this out of spite, we're not doing this out of cruelty or because we despise you or hate you, uh, want what's bad or worse for you, we are doing this because we love you. We have a responsibility to, to try to make as clear uh, in words and in deeds that that is the case. And likewise, the way we treat one another, the same thing. That if there is offense, we have a responsibility to, to make sure that that person knows that we love them. That that comes through loud and clear that we love you. And we're not doing what we're doing by way of uh, confronting a sin, an offense, to get even, but rather because we love you. And again, if that's not coming through, I, I think whether it's parents and children, or whether it's uh, elders and members of the church, or whether it's uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, if that's not coming through, I dare say that uh, that discipline uh, or the words that we speak um, in correction uh, will not be received. They will not be received. Um, it has to be given uh, so that that person, again, that person can reject the love 
uh, certainly that is offered. Doesn't mean just because we uh, exercise uh, uh, discipline and do it in love that it's necessarily going to be received. But that's our responsibility to, to seek to make sure that that person knows we love them. And that's, again, where the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, uh, keep my commandments. And that, I believe, is God's commandment to us, that we uh, show the love of Christ in that way. Jesus makes sure that we know he loves us because he gave his life for us. All right, let's, let's ask the Lord to bless the words that have uh, been given from his truth to our hearts this evening. Our Lord, we praise thee and thank thee for thy word of truth. Sanctify us through thy truth. Uh, thy word is truth. We thank thee, our God, for thy holy law and commandments and that uh, thou hast not taken away uh, the standard uh, the, so that we know uh, what thy will is and how, Lord, that we evidence and show our love by keeping thy commandments, beginning within our own hearts, not mere, a mere outward uh, obedience, but, Lord, uh, uh, where those desires flow from within our hearts to, to uh, love thee and to love our neighbor. Uh, seal these truths to our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.